Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Date in a Blink, where I'm joined by Talia Bombola, the confidence and assertiveness specialist and a psychodynamic coach. On today's episode of Date in a Blink, I have the pleasure of speaking to Talia Bombola, the confidence and assertiveness specialist. Talia is a licensed, certified psychodynamic psychotherapist and relationship and business coach for women. Her work centers around helping anxious women feel secure by increasing self-worth, confidence, and assertiveness, and rewiring beliefs about themselves, men, and relationships. She helps high-performing female entrepreneurs learn how to slow down, ease into their feminine energy, and feel safe being vulnerable in order to have a fulfilling relationship and an abundant business. She helps you heal the not-enoughness that is blocking you in your business and in love. Talia, I'm so happy to have you on today. Welcome. So on your website, you briefly mention that imbalanced masculine energy can leave a woman feeling burnt out and unsexy, while imbalanced feminine energy can leave people feeling vulnerable. I'm wondering how you work with people to balance those two out. Yeah, I see the primary, I think the primary focus of my practice would be working with women who are experiencing either one end of the spectrum or the other. Uh, And sometimes it's, they have kind of created a balance within themselves, but it's so unique to who they are used to being that they're not really comfortable with it yet. So that's a separate subset of people that I work with to maintain the balance. So being, being that burnt out, unsexy, I'm a do it all. I can get everything done. I don't rely on anyone. I derive self-worth from productivity. I am the man in the relationship. I don't want to ask for help either because the person won't do it my way or I'll just have to do it after them again, or where I've asked, they haven't done it. And so I don't trust anymore. Like any of those would be, I would categorize as that imbalanced masculine mm-hmm. and masculine energy is typically doer. It's like the penetrative life force. So it's very, very much so the drive for production and the drive for accomplishment and achievement and having something to, you know, that we can yield at the end of the day or the end of the month, whatever it is. And then the imbalanced feminine energy can often be seen as like the people pleaser type energy, very, very soft, very easily taken advantage of, gullible, easily manipulated, um, kind of used, typically like vacillating between feeling a lot of shame and trying to be proud of oneself, like feeling like they're the worst, but the best, some self-esteem concerns and making others dependent on them by meeting others' needs is sometimes what I see as well in that Mm in-between. So working to balance them out is what what does the woman get from being in her masculine and what does she get from being in her feminine? They have to have a buy-in to be able to want to shift or to change and like reorient and have more of a balance because Mm -hmm. trying to explain it to them that you're not going to get as much done is going to freak them out and further push them <laughs> into the masculine. Whereas it's saying, what could we outsource so that whatever you choose to still do, you're very excellent at that and you don't need to overwork yourself and burn your energy out. So I frame questions very specifically and strategically to have them have a buy-in. And I would say being able to work with women on feeling safe, being vulnerable when it typically hasn't been before is the majority of that imbalanced feminine energy. It's shifting out of that victim mindset that they don't have any opportunity to empower themselves and helping them recognize their worth. 
I, I have a second question, but before yes. that, just hearing you talk about it, it's it's interesting because I never really thought about you know the dynamic of oh I'm not going to ask for help because I can do it better or whatever, all of those things being something that's energetic in that way, and so it's really interesting to hear that perspective because I just just never thought about it, and these are problems we we experience but don't really address in terms of how we can balance ourselves to handle them. So um, just a very interesting perspective. And, and as that question, that second question that I was um, referring to, what does true balance look like and how does that vary potentially between people? I think true balance, as you mentioned, it's going to, or alluded to, it's going to vary between each individual. It's shifting from either either of the two energies in this case being more empowered in both of them rather than feeling like frantic or disempowered. It's like with feminine energy, it's shifting away from the insecurity, codependency, over-apologizing, not having boundaries, feeling unworthy. Like a lot of what's conflated with vulnerability is really sometimes low self-esteem. And then with masculine energy, when we're disempowered, it's it's like um, doing on overdrive. It's like overdoing, overthinking, being controlling, aggressive, perfectionistic, not willing to give up control, overbearing, like very cold and callous almost. Mm -hmm. And we don't societally associate women with that in a positive light, obviously, mm -hmm. like when they're in, they're in their true form and they're in their doing mode they're usually called names or they're judged and they're i feel like i fall in this bucket so i'm <laughs> this really resonates uh yes so we're unfairly judged when it comes to that and so the balance looks like being empowered in both so being able to do and be being accountable and honest and being receptive, but having boundaries on what you will and will not tolerate, mm -hmm. being able to work towards a goal, but also being able to go with the flow and feminine energy is more receptive and surrendering and masculine energy again is more, not even sexually, but penetrative and focused and ambitious. So a balance would look like being empowered in both in the ways that one individual benefits from the most. Awesome. Thank you. And then your website also refers to something that you call the center of the universe thinking. I'm wondering <laughs> yeah. if you could break that down for us. Yeah. So in analytic or therapeutic terms, it's egocentrism, mm. thinking that we are at the center of the universe. It's typically the highest in adolescence when the brain hasn't fully developed, <laughs> the lobe hasn't come online, which happens around 25. Mm. And it's necessary, I think, to go through that phase of life. It is a pain for those around at times, but <laughs> We do think to some degree, and this is kind of the heart of social anxiety as well, that everybody's thinking about us. And in social anxiety, it's a step further that it's all negative. Mm -hmm. And that's not usually the case. So I teach my students this also in my uh, professor role. If you are thinking about yourself and that you're the center of the universe, right, whether it's a lower other people are too. And other people also <laughs> are thinking they are the center of the universe. Who are they not thinking about? And they're like, right. oh, me. Exactly. <laughs> Like only you are the center of your own universe. It doesn't mean other people won't value you or want to prioritize you, but that egocentrism, that center of the universe thinking leads us to assume other people do things for the same reasons we do, leads mm -hmm. people to assume other people do like don't do things for the same reasons we wouldn't. And women are typically feelings driven. So we assume if you felt a certain way about us, you would or wouldn't do certain things. Men are not structured in the same way. So they aren't as easily manipulated, if you will, to 
not fall for that, but to be kind of oriented to the world in that way. And women are very keen on trying to make them feel different. <laughs> or, if you just felt this way, you would do this, or I can't believe that you did that. If you loved me, right. That's a lot of right. what I hear. So it's stepping out of yourself that you are only the center of your own universe, ideally. And that can be healthy if you balance it. And when it comes to being in a relationship with another person, you need to assume that they're also thinking of themselves. It doesn't mean they're not also thinking of you, but humans put their own self first, typically. Right. Um, so another another thing that popped out on the website, uh, your couples page. Yes. So there are some gifts on there, and three out of the four of them depict something that's pretty common to see in the media, especially yeah. in Hollywood. And it's the image of a crying woman and a stoic, emotionless man. Mm-hmm. And it even kind of goes back to what you were saying here with like how women feel and how they're kind of trying to pull men into it. And I, I just it is a really interesting kind of um, conversation to have. And so I'm yeah. wondering how you think this Hollywood dynamic has changed how women and men see their roles in relationships. And from what you've experienced, do you think there's any truth to it? That's a really, really good line of questioning. I think the Hollywood dynamics changed how men and women see the roles in some ways, further reinforcing for more, uh, people who are seeking out a more traditional role, I would say in their relationships or prefer that, there is a template that they can go off of and work backwards from if they don't want to go like full force into what's portrayed. And there are another you know, subset of people who are like, no, thank you. That's not for me. I don't want the role that was portrayed in all of these movies or what I heard, you know, the woman is just speak when spoken to and the man brings home the bacon and she fries it in the pan. And they're like, no, thank you. I don't want that. And every couple has to choose for themselves and they ideally will try on multiple roles before they settle into and I encourage couples to do it based on strength like mm-hmm. being up are you is one person better or less stressed out by doing housework let's say does it not cause an increased mental load on them then that's their task to do that is their strength it doesn't make them a worse person in the relationship it has really nothing to do with gender at that point though stereotypically that would be the woman's role in the relationship. And I'm putting that in air quotes. So from what I've experienced, there is some truth. And if we look at some personality typologies and how they usually match up, uh, the Enneagram five is kind of the brain of the Enneagram. They're disconnected socially and emotionally, but they're connected to the world and what's going on. Uh, They like to know a lot of things. They don't really like when people get in their head. They avoid insecurity, anxiety by knowing and having knowledge. Uh, Typically, this is the archetype that we see of man in society, and they partner with the societal norm of a two, which is that helper or giver. Mm -hmm. And that's the type that vacillates with shame and pride. And let me assess what people need and let me do things and meet other people's needs and be accommodating and Mm -hmm. be as good at giving and receiving, but an imbalance to like from an unhealthy area, you get very resentful. It's the people pleaser of like, haven't you seen all I've done for you? And you're not appreciated. Right. Like there's a dark side and a shadow side to it. So yes, there's definitely some truth to that more overly emotional, uh, you know, the crying woman and the stoic man, as you said, mainly because of the imbalanced energy. And if mm-hmm. I want feelings and you're not giving me them, I'm going to overcorrect and overcompensate. And like, if there's you know, an energetic field between the two of us, I'm going to be at like 90% capacity of emotion. So many women say they want him to be more emotional. 
but they don't leave space for him to do so, or they shame him when he does, mm-hmm. or laugh when he cries, etc. And that's pretty much ensuring that he will not show you that side of him again, because men tell women the truth when we're a safe person to tell the truth to. Mm. And we need to show that we are that way to change this dynamic, I think. Yeah. Even just hearing the, the, I guess that tail portion, mm-hmm. men kind of like women laughing at men when they cry and, and those things, Heart like I, you know, definitely going back to the Hollywood dynamic where there's this like expectation that men be a certain way and not well, be emotional at all, ever. Right. And they have honestly, some have more in depth, unable to articulate feelings than some women do. And I can only imagine, I know I have estrogen and testosterone in my brain, but I'm not a man. I can only imagine what that would be like to feel all of those things and not be able to articulate it. And then when I finally muster up and break the stereotype and try it, I get shamed by the one person who I'm hoping is there for me and will accept me. Mm -hmm. That is a very deep wound that has to heal when I've worked with couples and that's happened. And I call it out immediately. I'm a very assertive, uh, I'm an eight on the Enneagram. So I'm a smaller <laughs> leader. I will call it out immediately. And I'm like, I'm just going to stop you right there. If you ever want him to talk to you again, you need to apologize immediately. And you need to take ownership that that was not the right thing to do. And she'll kind of look at me. I'm like, I don't play in this session. Like right. <laughs> I treat both people with respect and equality. And that's not cool. If you say that you want to do that. And then I get, that you're uncomfortable with it, but you need to, you, if that's not what you intended to do is hurt him, you need to take accountability for that immediately. Right, right. So this kind of goes into uh, the next question. Um, so, you know, it's, I think it's safe to say that embracing and understanding our emotions can be really powerful, but mm-hmm. it can also go sideways pretty quickly uh, when our emotions get the best of us, whether we're in a, a context with somebody else or on our own. And I'm wondering what roles do emotions play in personal and relational development and how can we get a grip on them so they don't get a grip on us in these sorts of scenarios? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so emotions are energy and motion, as the quippy saying goes. They're information. Oh, I actually have never heard that before. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're uh, energy and motion, and it's a data point. So I work a lot with uh, behavioral therapy techniques at first when I'm teaching groups and there's a unit in a certain kind of behavioral therapy that discovers, helps people discover deeper sense of emotional regulation. So you're able to learn and identify 10 basic emotions like anger and guilt and shame and sadness and love. And, and it, it just, you really get a deep sense of what causes those things biologically? What do they feel like in your body? When, what precipitating event might happen that would cause it? Because we aren't taught this. We're assumed to know this all, quote unquote, as adults, except we don't get taught this from a young age. It's like, figure mm-hmm. it out. So being able to label and understand the emotion as well as learn to regulate it. Am I even feeling the right feeling? Am mm-hmm. I feeling it, but is it too intense? Do I need to scale it back? How can I use my linguistic center in my brain to verbalize what I'm emotionally going through? So I think the role that emotions play in personal and relational development are, I mean, at the foundation of everything. How do you feel about somebody? How do you feel towards somebody? And how do you express that? It's either going to cause growth or it's going to cause conflict, depending on what was modeled to you growing up. And parents, again, ideally set the developmental and emotional tone of the household. However, many of us were parented by emotionally immature parents or emotionally dysregulated parents or cut off parents. So we did not get the benefit of learning 
how to do that. And we're messily trying to figure it out in our adult relationships. And your second question of how to get a grip on them so they don't have a grip on Mm -hmm. us would be learning those emotional regulation skills and understanding that emotions aren't something to fear and they don't make us weak and to try and break through those stereotypes and understand that they are data. They are very Mm -hmm. solid information pieces for us to use at various points. And when we learn to properly convey them to our partner or to other people, it can cause growth in a positive direction rather than feeling jammed up, unable to communicate. Well, why can't you open up to me? The question could be answered by, I don't have the skills to do so, or I don't feel safe doing so. And I think both of those can be helped by learning more about emotional regulation skills. I, I love the idea that emotions are data. Um, yes. I, I don't know much about the different Enneagram profiles, but is analytical like part of yours? Because yeah. that's just such an analytical <laughs> perspective of it. So well, yeah, I'm, I am an eight. So if I'm in a like healthy growth stance at times, I typically go into the two, which is the okay. helper and giver. Um, but my wing is a five, which is that analytical okay. that I described earlier. But when you have that as like an option to kind of go into, it doesn't consume me entirely. But most college professors are fives and I'm a college professor. Got so it. it's like, okay, well, that's <laughs> I do it psychoanalysis. So I love analysis too. I, I, it's, it's a really awesome perspective and like a cool way to think about how we can relate to others. Thank um, you. And so I guess to follow up on that, Uh, You know, you shared a little bit about how we should do these things, like how to kind of learn, um, how to better learn to express our emotions and all of those things. And we don't always learn that growing up. But how do we go about doing that? What is a good way to continue cultivating our emotions, uh, embracing them and learning to navigate them in a way that's healthy for everyone once we're adults and we haven't been given the tools to do these things? Yes, uh, I I am happy to say that there are tools available now, uh, probably all over the internet and Amazon, mm. definitely social media. <laughs> so everybody can um, get out their phones and Google. It's called. But how do you find the good ones? Because I feel like there's a lot of bad stuff out there too. I will say to Google dialectical behavioral therapy or DBT okay. is the acronym emotion regulation, mm-hmm. and that is evidence based, scientifically backed for multiple decades. That is the standard level of treatment for some uh, personality disorders and diagnoses. But if it works for such an intense uh, diagnosis, it can definitely work for the lay people and the general population, as I like to say when I teach it in my groups. So Mm -hmm. I highly recommend that as an evidence-based practice to learn to manage and regulate your emotions and have emotional mastery. And in the same vein, after you are learning, you know, what feelings are, what causes them, how to temper some of them and express more of them being a deep having a deeper sense of awareness of what feelings do you have around certain people and that can help guide you to building an ideal life essentially trying to avoid intentionally who triggers you when you don't have a level of mastery being comfortable with those emotions and learning all of the other skills really and dbt is helpful as well like how to set a boundary how to be assertive so i'd recommend assertiveness training as well. And I can give you a link to uh, that, that you can put in the show notes if you want. So people can have evidence-based quality, like clinical level skills to use in their life. That would be great. Yes, please. We will put that in the show notes. Perfect. Uh, And so uh, uh, transitioning to the date that um, you listened to, Jonathan and Elle, I'm wondering if there were any particular strong suits to the date that you um, noticed. 
I think that they both did a very good job of taking turns in the conversation and it didn't feel like either of them were pressuring one another to answer. Mm-hmm. And I, from what I heard, their kind of tone and cadence in their delivery seemed open and curious. Mm-hmm. So I think those were some of the conversational strong suits. They both seemed like good speakers. And did you think that their overall level of comfort increased or decreased as the date progressed and, and why? I think it stayed the same. If I had, if I had to give a, a, an assessment, an honest assessment, I think if I, if I had to choose increase or decrease, it seems like they continued and chatted and she seemed interested in what he was saying and asked follow-up questions. So by that definition, I think the comfort increased, but it seemed the tone and cadence and the pressure of speech, it wasn't that pressured. Mm-hmm. It's pretty stable. Even when I was watching the, um, I have it on like an audiogram, basically, I can see it (laughs) bouncing in live time. I was like, oh, they're pretty even, evenly matched. Yeah. And then since there aren't any visual cues in our date, um, for the daters to figure out whether or not the other person was vibing with them, do you think that there were particular aspects of the conversation that might have given cues to each dater about whether or not the conversation was going well? Yeah, I think having those follow-up questions be asked or, you know, when they were talking about, like, I think it was the food preferences, mm-hmm. there, uh, Elle asked more of a follow-up question to learn more. I think that's gen- generally a sign of interest. He seemed a bit analytical, I will say, and mm-hmm. took the lead from what I heard, just that small snippet. Mm-hmm. So I would be curious had I like heard the whole date or heard more. Oh no, that was the whole date. (laughs) Okay. Then yeah. Nice and short. Yeah. Or if they went on a longer date, maybe I can reframe it that way. What that would have been like, or if they had met in person, like you said, because they don't have the visual cues. There didn't seem to be a lot of awkward silence. So I think that was a good sign as well. And they both were polite about giving each other time if they needed to answer it. I think that's a, a good, a good point. The time to answer, which feel like in some dates is lacking. So I did notice that as well. Yes. Um, and so I guess the million dollar question, date in a blank, what did you think? Do you think that they matched and why or why not? Uh, I'm indifferent, honestly. I think it's not a bad match. It didn't seem like they were overly smitten again, because it's all audio and I am biased. Admittedly, I'm a visual learner. So mm-hmm. I do a lot of my analysis uh, visually. Mm-hmm. So at some parts, it felt like more of a job interview, but I guess in some ways a date kind of is. Interviewing them <laughs> in the position of potentially right, or a partner. partner. Yeah. Right. So it, it felt natural, though. I didn't feel uncomfortable or cringe at any point. I think if they were to ask me, would you recommend going on like a, a real in-person date or a second date? I would say yes. I think that you both could get along. Yeah. And they, uh, to reveal what happened, they did match. Um, we don't know what happened after, but um, in the, the feedback that we got, one of the daters said that it was a great experience and they liked that it cut through the need to scroll through pictures. So although there was no visual, it allowed them to kind of just get right to that conversation um, and explore whether or not they were a fit. So I, I wish I knew more about what came <laughs> after, but I'm glad that the kind of conversation at least ended, that short conversation at least went well for them. That is wonderful to hear. And I agree with them that cutting through 
we, the visual is helpful. It's it's indulgent in some ways to have that much visual to look through and make judgments, <laughs> but in other ways, it's let's just see if we get along and this person's not just some random person off the street. Like they're vetted to some degree. I feel comfortable with that. It's like a blind date. Right. It is. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So as a wrap-up question, a question we like to ask all of our experts, do you have any words or wisdom, uh, words of wisdom or advice for our audience? Yes. So this is a line that I'm known for, and I think I say it probably more than my own name, but I like <laughs> to say that dating is data collection. That's kind of why they have the same matrix and root. You are not supposed to know everything all at once. And as much as people want this hack for fast forwarding to finding your person or avoiding dating entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, the remote from the movie click does not exist. Uh, and even if it did, <laughs> there are really, really crucial pieces of the beginning parts of dating and having to negotiate those energetic roles and power and control dynamics and who takes the lead and who feels comfortable. And that's a really in-depth part of building a foundation potentially for a long-term relationship. So I would say collect as much data as you can. It's the most important role you're ever hiring for. Uh, you end up with the rest of your life, no matter what you call or uh, the, the level of severity if the government is involved, if you get married. <laughs> they, the health impacts of if it's a healthy relationship are multiplied positively tenfold and the negative impacts are the same you know, in a downward way. So it's really important to collect as much data as you can and hire the right person for the role. And I would also say that not everybody does the same things for the reason that you would. So mm-hmm. don't make assumptions. And if you have an assumption, please verify it with the person before you start interacting with them as if it's true. So scientific. But I, I have a follow-up question on this because we were talking about this at the beginning, how people will do so much research about their matches <laughs> before actually meeting them. And so how do you? How would you recommend people navigate that de- data collection process in this world of online dating without getting all of the assumptions, yes. but still going through the process of really getting to know someone? Yes. Yeah, so I think if the experiment is dating to experiment conditions to make sure that you are uh, looking at would be the physical safety piece and then the emotional safety piece. So in, I think, a a further explanation that's kind of brief, that the physical safety piece, letting people know where you are, meeting in a public place, whatever information you want to have from them, a quick Google search can let you know if you're being catfished or not, or if this person is who they say they are. I'm a big fan of equipping yourself with the physical safety and knowledge. That's, I think, more than enough than you would need, again, if it's just for a first date. And then what we often see, though, is this down the rabbit hole we go detective work and they hire <laughs> themselves at Law and Order SVU and right. they're like, I will find that the person's like, I didn't do any of that. And you're like, but I saw nine years ago. They're like, wow, you really went down the rabbit hole. <laughs> I and gain that emotional safety and avoid vulnerability by controlling the experiment, quote unquote, too much right. and trying to collect way too much erroneous outlier data that actually doesn't apply to this experiment or they project their other experiences onto, again, this new experiment condition with this new participant, and they're not even accurately enjoying the date because they've done too much vetting in an effort to try and control getting hurt or rejected. And I, I give tough love. That's the name of the game. Sometimes people aren't going to like you. Sometimes right. you're not going to like them back. That is life. Making the goal being rejection in the beginning can also help you to neutralize it. Like I'm going to go on 50 or 60 first dates. And that's a lot of data to collect out of 
four, you know, let's say you were rejected four times out of 60, it doesn't hurt as bad. But if you were mm-hmm. one out of one time, yeah, that's going to hurt more. Right. I, I totally embrace that concept, just even outside of dating, just yes. thinking about yeah. like any opportunity that you're putting yourself out for. If you give, you know, only pursue one, it's going to feel much worse if you don't get it. If you pursue 50, you might not even remember which one it was when it, you get rejected, like I get rejected yeah. for things. And I'm like, I don't even remember that I applied for that or whatever it may be. Yes. Colleges, jobs, mm-hmm. uh, apartment complex. I'm trying, yeah, literally anything in life that you have to apply for or show proof for yeah. or what have you, you won't always get it. And if you give it long enough after and you don't sit in the problem saturated story, oftentimes you can see that it ended up being a, a you know blessing in disguise or you know whatever you want to say, fate that it didn't happen. It, sometimes the thing that you want isn't meant for you and people have a hard time accepting that. So that would probably be my final bit of advice that you can only try and control so much and too much planning can make you really ineffective. This is true. And then one more question for you, the final one, how can our audience get in touch with you? Oh yes. So I have an Instagram page, which is my first and last name, Talia Bombola. And I have um, three podcasts that I alternate between one of them is the Couples Guide podcast. The other one is Between Two Clinicians. And then I have a live podcast, Heal Through Humor. So that's many ways to get in touch and learn more. And then my website is also my first and last name. And if you're in California and you would like uh, clinical therapy, psychotherapy, my website is therapywithtalia.com. Awesome. I will include all of that great information in the show notes. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate this conversation. That's all we've got for you today. Shoot us a message on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at the blank date or at date in a blank to let us know what you think. If you want to try voice first speed dating from the comfort of your home, download the blank date app today. You can also sign up to participate in date in a blank by visiting our website at www.theblinkdate.com. In the meantime, thanks for joining us for this episode. We hope you enjoyed listening and look forward to talking with you again next time.